0: In this passage, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to say, thanks be to God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Maybe this has happened to you before. You're at home and you're watching the movie and you're enjoying it. You like the story, you can relate to the characters and it's about halfway through the movie. So most of the action is already established. You already know what the movie is about. And then someone else at your house decides, I wanna watch the movie with you. So they join you, they sit down next to you and no sooner than 10 seconds later, the questions start firing. They look up at the screen, they say, oh, who's that? Oh, who's him again? What's this about? Oh, that actor, what was he in? This proves the point. Sometimes you just want to be left alone. But also to best understand a story, you have to know the beginning. In our look at 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 10, we will zoom out on the bigger story of the Bible throughout our time. And maybe you picked up on this when we read it, but Peter quotes different parts of the Bible a lot in this passage. So it it will help us to know the big story of the Bible and there's no better place to start than the very beginning. So I wonder if you can finish this line for me. In the beginning, God. Oh, good job. You you guys said that with such enthusiasm. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, most of us are familiar with the beginning of the story with creation, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the universe and everything in it. But when it comes to creation, you and I are usually uh, focusing on the what of creation, like what God made, what God said. Maybe sometimes we even focus on the how, like how God did it. It's like God spoke. We have libraries and conferences and museums dedicated to the what and the how of creation. But I would argue that the Bible is just as much concerned with the why of creation. God created man and woman to be royal priests. And what does that mean? That means God created man and woman to be his special representatives. He created man and woman to guard the place where he dwells. He created man and woman to be uniquely close to him. So with this unique status, God gives man and woman a unique task to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. By doing this, Adam and Eve would fill the earth with more people who represent God and are uniquely close to him. And as that happened, the place where God is especially present would expand and the voices who praise God would multiply. So God's commission to Adam and Eve, what he tells them to do, tells us the why of creation, God creates to share his presence. God creates to fill the world with his praise. Knowing this beginning will help you make sense of the whole story. Because as you continue on in the story, it doesn't take long for this purpose to get lost. The rest of the Bible is about reclaiming this purpose that God will share his presence and God will fill the world with his praise. But he'll do this through a new Adam, his own son, Jesus, who succeeded where Adam failed, who was a true and faithful royal high priest. Jesus fulfills Adam's task. Jesus multiplies those who represent God and who uniquely enjoy him. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10 is part of that big story. Let's zoom back in. 1 Peter 2 4 to 10. Peter intends to encourage us, to sturdy us, to enliven us. Remember that the people he's writing to are weak and weary exiles in the world. But what Peter is saying is that God can make them worshipful witnesses for Christ who have a heart for the world. Here's what Peter, I think, is getting across. If we could summarize 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10 in our own words, maybe we could put it like this. You'll find it on the back of your bulletin. Rejected Christians must remember how God sees them in Christ instead of how the world sees them. This will give them perseverance to praise and to proclaim God. And when that happens, when they praise and proclaim God, they are part of God's mission in the world. Our three points this morning more or less dissect that summary. Point one, through Christ, we are made like Christ. Point two, through Christ, we are rescued from the world. And point three, when we remember these things, this gives us perseverance to praise and proclaim God in the world. So point one, through Christ, we are made like Christ. Here we're looking mainly at verses uh, four through six in 1 Peter 2. Uh, so, as, again, as we go through this letter, it's really important for us to remember the situation of the people who first received this letter. What are they going through? We get indications of their situation throughout 1 Peter. The strongest one we've seen so far came in chapter 1, verse 6, when Peter tells them, You are grieved by trials of various kinds. So Peter has gone to lengths to encourage and to instruct these hurting and struggling Christians. So remembering their situation will even help us today as we consider this passage. So today in our passage in verse four, Peter starts off by describing Jesus. Jesus is the one they have come to. This is another. This is another way to say that Jesus is the one they believe in. He uses that uh, interchangeably because soon after this in verse six. Peter says, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. Verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. It's just a, a small point. It's a small reminder. That to believe in Jesus is not just to accept an idea. To believe in Jesus is to come to a person. The only one who is fully God and fully man. The only one who is the one mediator between God and man. The person who loves you and gave himself for you. So who is this Jesus that they have come to and have believed in? Well, verse four, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter says that Jesus isn't some dead principle in a book. Jesus isn't some frozen monument in a park. He is a living stone. That refers to his resurrection, that Jesus died, but has been made alive and is alive forevermore. Peter continues He describes Jesus by describing what people think about him. He says people rejected him. Their rejection of Jesus culminated in their execution of Jesus. But that's not all. Peter also describes what God thinks of Jesus. In the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. So men might have rejected Jesus, but God vindicated Jesus. And he did this by rising his son from the dead. By rising Jesus from the dead, God proved that he accepted his son's sacrifice for sin. He proved that he gave Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. We see this description of Jesus. But as Peter describes Jesus, the one they've come to believe in, he then describes them, those who have believed in Jesus. So verse 5, he says, you yourselves. So another way we could put this, he, it's like he's saying, so also you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. What Peter's doing is that he's making a comparison. He's saying, for example, that as Jesus is alive, those who trust in him have now been made alive also, that they are no longer dead in their transgression and sin, that they are alive in Christ. His life is their life and they will have his life forever. Peter's making a comparison. He's saying that as Jesus calls himself the temple, the place where God's presence uniquely dwells on earth. So also together, those who trust in Jesus are now also the temple, the place where God uniquely dwells on earth. Peter's making a comparison. He's saying as Jesus is the great high priest, he's the one who represents God. By virtue of what he has done, he can bring people into the presence of God. So, also, now those who trust in Jesus are a holy priesthood. Through Christ, they have access to God. Through Christ, they point others to the one who gives them access to God. So, are you beginning to see it? That through faith in Christ, God now sees you like Christ. You are a living stone, you are part of his temple, you are a priest. I think from the very beginning, there is comfort for us. There is comfort for the overachiever, who is a perfectionist, who always strives and works and hustles and grinds. There is comfort for the failure, who feels like they never belong. Whether you're the valedictorian or whether you're the dropout or whether you're just the person who gets C's. Here is good news for you, friend. This passage tells you you can be accepted. Accepted. That you can be accepted. And it's not through how much you sacrifice for God. You could be accepted because of what God sacrificed for you. He sacrificed his only son so that you can belong to him. Oh, my friend, come to Jesus and trust in him and you'll be made alive. Come to Jesus and trust in him and you'll be part of something unlike anything else. Come to Jesus and trust in him and you'll be brought back to God. Come to Jesus and trust in him and you'll be given a task and purpose in the world. Come to Jesus and trust in him and God will see you like he sees his own son. Peter supports this by quoting another part of the Bible. He quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 is a message of warning and judgment for God's people who lived in Jerusalem. God's people who lived in Jerusalem, danger was nipping at their heels. A mighty foreign power threatened to conquer and invade them. So, God's people were then tempted to sell out and seek refuge in another foreign country. And so, in comes Isaiah 28, where God tells his people through the prophet Isaiah, Guys, don't sell out. Seek refuge in me. And God's people don't listen. They don't seek refuge in the one who will provide the chosen and precious king that will save them. They seek refuge in other things, and they are invaded. Conquered, put to shame. Friend, whether or not you're a Christian, danger will inevitably nip at your heels. Something will loom large in your life that threatens to invade you and to conquer you. I don't know, maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a disease. I know for every person in this room, it will one day be death. Threatening to invade you and conquer you. So you will be tempted to sell out and seek refuge in something else. You'll be tempted to sell out and seek refuge by hiding. To sell out and seek refuge by blending in. To sell out and seek refuge by distracting yourself. To sell out and seek refuge by escaping into pleasure or escaping into substance or escaping into entertainment. You'll be tempted to sell out and seek refuge by compensating with your own success or with your own beauty and these are all foreign powers you think will spare you from the shame of being invaded and conquered, but they will let you down. Here you have a clear word from God. Trust the one who has provided the king who saves, the one who died and rose again for sinners like you and me. If you do this, you will not need to worry that he will let you down. Because those who trust in him are made like him. Peter says Jesus is like the cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone was the first piece of the building that was laid down. So this tells us that Jesus went before you and me, that Jesus went through what we face and more, and he conquered it. Jesus is the cornerstone. This also tells us that the cornerstone determines the shape and scope of the rest of the building. So the shape and design of the building comes from the shape and design of the cornerstone. The building will be like the cornerstone. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, guys, Christians, Jesus is your cornerstone. So that means as Jesus is rejected by the world, so also you will be rejected by the world. Jesus is your cornerstone. That also means that as Jesus in the sight of God is chosen and precious and honored, so also you. Through Christ, we'll be chosen and precious and honored. Through Christ, we are made like Christ. Point number two, rejected Christian, through Christ, you are rescued from the world. So take a look at verse seven. Peter makes a conclusion. So then, if those who trust in Christ are made like Christ, if they are rejected by men but vindicated by God, then the honor is for them, not for those who don't believe. Peter has written about this already in chapter one, verse seven. Back there, he says there's coming a day where everybody will stand before Jesus and give an account for their lives. He said that those who will receive praise and glory and honor on that day aren't those who trust in themselves and what they have done. Those who receive praise and honor and glory on that day are those who trust in Jesus and what he has done for them. So here he says in chapter two, verse seven, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Once again, Peter supports his conclusion by quoting another part of the Bible. This time, he quotes Psalm 118, a favorite psalm among the New Testament authors and even Jesus himself. This psalm describes how the king returns to the temple after he conquers his enemies. His enemies had rejected him. His enemies had stumbled over him and were even offended by him. But now this king in victory is the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this same psalm, Psalm 118, and he applies it to the Jewish religious authorities who hated him. And it's really tragic if you think about it. Because Jesus is the chosen and precious king, the cornerstone sent by God to save these Jewish religious authorities. And yet they reject him. They disobey the word they hear from God. What does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the same happens today. This word about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, still goes out. And yet people still disobey it, reject it, refuse to believe in him. So I wonder, friend, maybe you're here today and, and you haven't decisively believed in Jesus. Maybe you're here today and, and the way that you operate is this. That's, you know, in life, I just I do what I can to make a difference for the people around me. In life, I don't steal, I don't cheat, I, I don't harm others. I might slip up on occasion, but hey, I'm human. Everybody does that. Mainly, in life, I just try to give out positive energy. I take care of my responsibilities, I try to be kind, and I think this is just the type of person that we need in the world. My friend, if, you, if that's your mindset, well, I'd love to have a longer conversation with you. Um, But I wonder how you would interact with a verse like 1 Peter 2 7. That honor doesn't belong to those who achieve. Rather, honor belongs to those who believe. You see, according to your mindset, there is only hope for the quote unquote good people. But what about the quote unquote bad people? According to your mindset, how can they be forgiven? How can they be restored? But you see, the crucifixion of the Son of God tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we are all the quote-unquote bad people. The crucifixion of the Son of God tells you that you're in a much deeper predicament than you realize. That you and I have sinned against an infinite God and we owe an infinite debt. But for those who believe, the debt is paid. Jesus paid it all. And when you trust in him, the honor that he deserves becomes yours. Maybe you're here today, you haven't yet decisively believed in Jesus, that you still disobey the word, you reject the word said about him. You still stumble over him, you're still offended by him in some kind of way. Maybe you say, maybe this is your mindset, that, you know, nothing's going to last. Everything we see around us is all temporary, life is short, just enjoy it while it's here. Maybe for you that means that you just, in life, you chill out, you just enjoy the little things. Maybe we could spot you wearing a Life is Good t-shirt. Maybe for you, you see, you see everything around you is not going to last. And so for you, that means you burn out and you do what you can to maximize the things in this life. Maybe we could spot you wearing a work hard, play hard T-shirt. My friend, if you think this way, it's true. You're right. The things around you won't last. But you will. And you know what? I, I, I think you know that you will last. I think deep down, you know that people are more than just a series of chemicals firing off. In fact, God says that he has stamped eternity on each one of our hearts. My friend, consider 1 Peter 2.7. Here's Jesus, the one who came down to give us life by giving up his life. He gives honor. He gives fullness of life now and forever, not because he had to. Not because we deserved it, but because he is gracious. My friend, you will find no one else like Jesus. So I want you to think back to the people who received this letter first. They are struggling and hurting Christians. They are experiencing rejection from the world. Why would Peter include chapter 2, verses 7 and 8? Well, I think it would be to remind them that just as rejection of Jesus wasn't the last word about his life, neither will rejection be the last word about their lives. No, the last word about Jesus's life was honor. And so is for them. The last word about their lives will be honor. I think 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 is Peter's way of saying, guys, things won't stay as they are. It's it's Peter's way of saying, guys, God hasn't lost his grip on this world. It's Peter's way of saying, guys, rejection hasn't caught God by surprise. That mysteriously and amazingly enough, though people are responsible for rejecting Christ, God has included it in his plan. And as Peter continues, he says, now those who trust in Jesus aren't part of the world. They aren't part of the group that won't receive honor at the end. In verses nine and 10, Peter tells us that those who trust in Jesus are now unlike the world. Look at the titles there. Those who trust in Jesus are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. They are now God's people. They are those who have received mercy. All these titles here, especially the ones in verse nine, are actually another reference to the Bible. Something that's come before we we read it earlier in the service. As a matter of fact, all of these titles are used to describe Israel. Exodus nineteen verses five to six. God says, "Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So I think this again clues us to the big story of the Bible. When Adam rejected God, when Adam failed to represent God and failed to guard the place where God is present, when Adam did that, well, God made a promise. God promised to restore peace to his people so that they might dwell with him and enjoy him forever. He promised to do this through one family, a family that began with Abraham. This family later turned into a nation, the nation of Israel. God intended Israel to be a light to the nations around them. They were uniquely set apart to enjoy God's presence, uniquely set apart to represent what God's like to the rest of the world. Through Israel, God had intended to bless the world and expand the place where he is especially present. Through Israel, God intended to fill the world with those who praise his name. Yet Israel, like Adam, failed. They didn't represent God. They tarnished the place where he was present. They rejected God for themselves. But God keeps his promises. God sent his son to be born an Israelite, to be born a descendant of Abraham, He sent a son to be the new and better Adam. Jesus lived a life that perfectly reflects who his father is. Jesus brings those who have rejected God back to God by dying in their place. So now, who are those who are the chosen race? Who are those who are the royal priesthood? Who are those who are the holy nation and the people for God's own possession? Who are they? They aren't those who are physically born into Israel. They are those who are reborn and believe in Jesus, the one who fulfills what Israel and Adam were meant to be. So whether Jew or Greek, rich or free, slave or poor, those who now enjoy God's presence, those who now represent God in the world, those who are God's own special people are those whom Jesus has saved. So we're saying this morning, that all of these titles in First Peter 2, 9 to 10, that anyone can get in on this, anyone. But it must be through the only one who lived the life we didn't live, died the death we deserved, and rose again proving that honor and victory belonged to him. So again, friends, I want you to think back to the people who received this letter first. They're struggling and hurting Christians who are experiencing rejection from the world. Why would Peter include chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? Why would he include the, this for them? Well, that makes me think of an event from the life of King David. It's one of my favorite scenes from his life. Remember that King David grew up as the runt of the family, the youngest of his brothers. King David grew up as the farmhand shepherd boy, but God promised to make David king. There was a problem, though. There was already a rightful heir to the throne, Jonathan, King Saul's son. Yet Jonathan recognized God's promise to David, and Jonathan gave himself up and stepped aside. So David becomes king. And not only that, God later promises David that one of his descendants will reign on his throne forever. So soon after that, David just feels the need to bless someone. And he says, I want to bless someone for Jonathan's sake. So he sends out his envoy to search the entire kingdom. Find me a descendant of Saul, who I might bless for Jonathan's sake. And he finds a guy named Mephibosheth. If there's ever a guy who needed a nickname, it was Mephibosheth. Um, Now, it was standard practice and standard procedure in that time that a new king would kill any uh, relatives of a previous king or a rival king. This would neutralize all threats to his throne. What's more, what Mephibosheth had said is crippled. There's nothing that he can offer David. And so though Mephibosheth faced death, though there was nothing he had to offer, Mephibosheth is blessed, not for his sake, but for Jonathan's sake. Mephibosheth gets to sit at the king's table for the rest of his life. I think Peter includes verses nine to 10 to make you feel like Mephibosheth and to make you feel like David. To remind you, I should be dead (laughs) and I had nothing to offer, but I get to sit at the table and I am blessed not for my own sake, But for Jesus' sake, the one who set aside himself and gave himself up. Peter includes verses 9 and 10 to make you feel like David. To remind you that you are not a self-made person. To remind you that you are no better than the Mephibosheths of the world. To remind you that you have received undeserved kindness. And now, like David, you give undeserved kindness. Kindness. When you know that Jesus rescued you from the world, like Jesus, you will then have a heart for the world. Even the world that is rejecting you. That brings us to our third point. As you endure the hardship and rejection in the world, you remember these two things that Peter is saying. You remember that through Christ, you are made like Christ. You remember that through Christ, you are rescued from the world. When you remember these two things, you'll be able to persevere to praise and proclaim God. Friends, do you see that this is the same dynamic that's been at work throughout 1 Peter? That the only way you can live out the command of God is if you have first already received grace from God. Again, this week, the indicative comes before the imperative. Being comes before doing when you are united to Christ by faith and you are rescued from the world, only then can you now praise and proclaim God. So maybe you notice in these two paragraphs, there are two purpose statements. So we've spent a lot of time talking about, the, uh, about what we've become through Christ. Here we're talking about why. Why is that the outcome that was lost by Adam in the first creation is regained by Jesus in the new creation. He fills the earth with those who praise and proclaim God. So let's talk about the why. The first purpose statement comes in verse 5. So Christian, you have been made like Christ. Christian, you have been rescued from the world. Why? Verse 5. In order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, before we break it down, remember that this isn't something that we do alone. Peter's giving this command to a group. It's something we do as a church. A group, not an individual. A family, not an only child. What does this mean? Well, we can break down this purpose like this. Spiritual. Spiritual means we do this only in the power of the Holy Spirit who now resides in us as believers in Jesus. Sacrifices. Notice that it's plural. Meaning that there are multiple ways you can devote yourself to the Lord. And consider even what Peter has said already in his letter. Just from chapter 1, verse 13. Since then, he's talked about all the ways we are meant to live in light of having received God's grace. Having received God's grace, Peter says we can now set our hope fully on God. Having received God's grace, Peter has said we can now live holy lives in all of our conduct. Having received God's grace, Peter says now we can proclaim the one who calls us out of darkness. And notice again that these sacrifices aren't what makes us acceptable. Jesus is the one who makes us acceptable. One pastor puts it like this. Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. In light of his work, we devote ourselves wholeheartedly to him. Well, let's take the second pers- uh, purpose. Christian, You have through Christ, you've been made like Christ. Through Christ, you've been rescued from the world. Why? Verse nine, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, before we break this down, remember, this isn't something that you do alone. This instruction is this given to the church. Remember, God hasn't saved a soloist. God has saved the choir. We will proclaim God better. We will proclaim God more beautifully when we proclaim him together. You know, just as an aside, I think this is one of the most underrated ways to grow in your evangelism. Do you struggle to know, like, what to say when you're talking about Jesus and what he has done? I think one of the most underrated ways to grow is to watch someone else do it. (laughs) To do it together. So maybe today after church, today over lunch, Maybe come up with ways, be creative about how you can grow in proclaiming God, not just alone, but together. Well, we can break down this purpose like this. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's just start at the beginning. You proclaim. This doesn't say that you tiptoe. Doesn't say that you hint at. It's actually the same word that's used for preach. This tells you something, Christian. God intends every Christian to be a preacher, to announce and persuade, to warn and commend who God is and what he has done. Peter says, we proclaim the excellencies of him. Excellencies means the glorious deeds that God has done. Friends, even think about this passage. You can see excellencies of God in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. You just got to look closely. You can see excellencies of God here. You see here in this passage that the creator restores what his creatures have broken. You see excellencies of God in this passage. You see Jesus, the living stone. Jesus, the eternal son of God who came to people he made and who he knew would reject him. You see in this passage, excellencies of God, you see Jesus rose from the dead. In this passage, you get to see that. In this passage, you see excellencies. You see that God is so wise. God is so with control. God is so pure that he can bend evil for his good purposes and still not be the author of evil himself. You see excellencies in this passage. That through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, God makes his enemies his friends. Oh, friends, this God is worth praising and this God is worth proclaiming. This is an important insight. You proclaim what you praise. You share what you enjoy. I'm by no means the first to observe this. Right? If you really enjoy something, if you really find something praiseworthy, you will tell other people about it. It's just natural. That's why I show people uh, like dumb pictures of my dog, Annie. Annie. Because I think she's silly and cute. I want other people to see it and enjoy it. That's why I tell people about vanilla malta at East Coast Custard. Because it's so good. I want other people to get it and enjoy it. That's why you tell people about your favorite show on Netflix. Because you've really enjoyed it. You want them to enjoy it too. My friend, what about God? Do you praise him? Do you enjoy him? If you did, wouldn't it be natural for you to share? (laughs) Wouldn't it be natural for you to want others to, to praise him and enjoy him as well? I think about what this passage says, that God has done glorious things. But it says more than that. Believer in Jesus, this says God has done glorious things for you. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what we're saying is that maybe you don't shine brightly in the dark world because you don't enjoy the light of God's presence and grace. You know, I've heard it explained like this. I don't know if you've if you ever seen one of those glow-in-the-dark toys, just uh, something that glows in the dark. You know those toys don't always work. You see, if, if you put a, a glow-in-the-dark toy and you keep it in a dark desk drawer all day, and then you take it out at night when it's dark, it won't glow in the dark. That glow-in-the-dark toy will only glow if it's first been charged in the light So Christian, I wonder, have you ever considered that you struggle in your evangelism, that you hesitate to be vocal about God, that you shy away from proclaiming the name of Jesus because you haven't been charged, because you haven't basked in the light of God's grace in Christ, because you yourself don't enjoy the God who has done glorious deeds for you? You know, it's been said that evangelism exists because worship doesn't meaning that we want to see more worshipers of God so that what compels us to proclaim faith in Christ to other people. But it's also been said that if evangelism doesn't exist, it's because worship doesn't. Because, friends, when you truly worship and enjoy something, it's just natural that you would share it. You were saved to praise and Proclaim. But the only way you could do that is if you first receive and enjoy and bask in the grace of God. Maybe another way to put it is like this. You won't proclaim good news until you really believe you have good news to proclaim. So my friend, if you're going to fulfill your mission to praise and proclaim, you need to be charged each day in the light of God's grace. Just spend each day staring and singing and praying until you rejoice and enjoy again the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You go to the word each morning and you say, God, don't let me leave until I see and enjoy your excellencies again. Be charged each day. Let's close by zooming back out. You see, when we lean into our purpose, When we praise and proclaim the glorious God who saved us, we are fulfilling the why of new creation. By praising and proclaiming, we are fruitful and multiply. The commission given to Adam is reclaimed by the great commission given by Jesus. As we praise and proclaim and more people come to Jesus and believe in him, God calls more people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And when that happens, the temple gets bigger. The place where God is especially present expands. The voices who praise God multiply. So friends, God is fulfilling his purpose through those who trust in Christ. Will you be part of it? His glory is filling more and more of the earth. One day his work will be done. The temple will be complete. One day those from every tribe and tongue and nation will see his face and sing his praise. He will be their God, and we will be his people, and we will uniquely enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your mighty and saving and gracious purpose. That in filling the earth with your praise, you have saved us. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Oh Lord, we. We remember and we bask and we give you thanks for your glorious grace, for your excellencies, for your mighty deeds that we see displayed in the gospel. Help us to lean in to your purpose for us. Make us those who praise you in all of life and all that we do. Make us those who proclaim you because we enjoy you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.